folks, and welcome to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Ziv Nakajima again. Great to have you with us today. The rain is back in Japan with a vengeance, hopefully not causing any severe damages this time around, or at least not yet. And uh, global warming changes notwithstanding, we hopefully should see the end of the rainy season in a couple of weeks or so. Fingers crossed. Now, as we've mentioned several times over the past few months, this current COVID situation we're all in at the moment does have a silver lining, and that is that the market is now softer. So very much a buyer's market. Property prices are lower in most major cities, or at least far more negotiable. And our existing clients have been having a field day, of course, uh, but also many new clients have also signed up. And today's conversation is a recording of a call with one of these clients who was, at the time of the call, making his initial inquiries and planning ahead with the aim of constructing a longer-term portfolio in mind. And that portfolio would consist of both individual condo units and some small buildings, mainly residential, but potentially commercial as well. And we discuss a lot of the things we've discussed here on the podcast as well many, many times. So locations, uh, financing, management, potential growth prospects on different property types and so forth. And if you'll stick around until the call is concluded, I'll be back and let you know what he ended up doing as well. So here it is, a detailed conversation with a new Canadian investor that's all about planning out and structuring a diverse and robust property portfolio in Japan. Enjoy, and I'll see you again on the other side. Any particular questions? Let me just revert back to your email again. Um, so you were wondering about... Um, financing i think and tokyo versus other cities and so forth yeah we, we can start with with the macro so you know regions in japan um the big markets any differences among them and then i think pre you raised a, a question around property types given my experience i've just been you know on the residential condo side uh back in canada but curious to hear your thoughts on the other property types um that that was, were listed if there were you know, huge attractions there in the, the Japanese market that I'm, I'm not aware of. Well, it's horses for courses. It depends on what the rest of your portfolio and what your criteria looks like. So the, the individual units tend to generate the highest rental yields. Mm-hmm. And also there's the added factor of um, um, stability just in the sense that all exterior and building renovations and repairs are handled, um, usually handled by the monthly fees that you pay, the condo fees. Um, on the downside, they don't stand to gain as much. I mean, Japan not being generally a capital gains market, but if and when the economy does well, they don't stand to gain as much as properties with a bigger land pr- footprint do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a land, it's the underlying land value that, that drives up capital gains. Definitely not the structures, yeah. Yeah. And okay. the... Um, the, the condos do come with a land portion. They're all freehold. So the land portion that the building stands on is divided, um, not equally, but depending on unit size between uh, the co-owning owners. But it's a fraction of a land portion. So obviously yeah. the potential for growth there is more limited. And the other thing is that um, you can't be as creative with a condo because you're depending on condo um, uh, owners, co-op uh, bylaws and legislation, not legislation, but regulations and so forth. So you're like, limited. Like creative, do you mean like renting it out and renter profile? Because I know like in, in Canada, it's a bit more flexible. In New York, you know, there are co-ops that have really stringent approval processes for bringing in new tenants. Um, 
but if it's something like big renovation, I think that's probably fine for me. Well, there's not that many limits on tenant profiles. They can't actually forbid you from leasing to any particular tenant profiles. I mean, they can try. I've seen some condos that tried to um, pile up some difficulties for people who wanted to put in uh, single moms and stuff like that, just saying that, uh, you know, kids are noisy and that sort of thing. But they don't really have a legal uh, leg to stand on with that. Okay. But it's more a case of um, what kind of rentals you do lease-wise. So um, short-term rentals like Airbnb, et cetera, fall under a specific legislation in Japan. And mm-hmm. as of June, uh, June 2018, uh, they've... Put, they've given the permission to building uh, management companies and owners co-op to forbid short-term leasing. And 99% of them followed suit and forbade that. So if you want to lease for anything that's less than a month and without a proper tenancy lease in place, so basically guest-type facilities, you can't do that in a co-owned block. Um, because the vast no, majority... That, that wouldn't be my intention yeah so uh, like y- the shortest one i have in canada is on a three-month basis with extensions and for japan just given the cash flow focus i probably want something even longer than that at least a year or well, longer. the uh, typical long-term lease is usually for two years here i mean there'll be some exceptions of people who ask for shorter leases but it's normally two years or it might be a year if it's one of those exceptions um, you can definitely lease them out by the month. The building um, management company and the owners, the other owners might not like that, but they can't really prohibit it. They can just make it a little bit difficult. Yeah. Um, but okay. anything beyond the, anything that's done with a proper lease in place and for a minimum of one month, um, you can still do with individual condos as well. And creativity, I mean, in the sense of... I mean, if, if you own the entire building, then at some point in the future, you can... Um, expand it if you've got the land for it you can turn it into a, a you can completely demolish it and build like a logistics or commercial facility etc just stuff that you can't do with a condo that's all right okay um, that's helpful and the yield and tends to be the yield tends to be lower simply because with individual condos you can pick and choose one that's got a high uh, high rent tenant in place when you purchase and when you buy an entire building, it's obviously going to be a mixed bag of tenants. So some of them will be paying more, some of them will be paying less, depending on when and uh, how they moved in. Right. Okay. And in terms of outlay, initial outlay, obviously individual condo units on the smaller size compared to entire buildings or detached homes. Uh, yeah, much lower. So yeah. in, individual so condo units in, in Tokyo... Normally, they start at about 7 or 8 million yen, although in the last few months, we have seen a few that went as low as 6 million yen just because of the COVID-19. But generally speaking, in other cities, they can go as low as um, 3 million yen, even 2, 2.5 in some places. I see. Whereas uh, in, entire buildings usually start, um, even in smaller towns, usually start at around um, 30 million or so. Yep. Right? Um, that should, should give us 
som, som you know, diversification across a, a few a few units, um, at least in the near term, which I think is is helpful. Well, with the financing, though, the minimum that you will be able to get as a non-resident would have to be a loan that's uh, 15 or 20 million per asset. So you can't really diversify that much. Per asset, so you can't buy three or four properties that are less than 15, 20 million uh, each. Oh, per loan per asset. So they give you um, the minimum loan amount has to be 15 or 20 million per asset, and then that's going to be 60 to 70 percent, and the other 30, 40 percent you'll have to put in yourself in cash. Okay, so maybe if I if I move up a little bit to 15 million, then we could buy two. I'm just thinking in my head. Fifteen million? You mean uh, down payment? Yeah, like one fifty, one fifty k US at thirty, forty percent. So you're looking at maybe three hundred for the for the loan portion. So that could could be split across two properties for the fifteen million minimum. Yes, that's correct. Some of the lenders will actually necessitate that you set up a Japanese uh, corporate structure. Others won't, so it depends on who you're borrowing from. But in any case, I guess the only way around it would be to set up a Japanese company um, and then build up, uh, build up an income history for three, four, five years, and then you'll have local Japanese income and you might be able to apply for um, normal loans from normal banks, not specifically non-resident foreigner loans. And in those cases, then that criteria is a lot better and more open. Um, but that's a structure. So obviously it costs um, a certain amount of upkeep and you have to bear in mind the tax implications. I mean, most people would want to minimize taxes, but if you want to prove your income uh, for a future loan, you want to show that you are paying some taxes. Right. So it's a bit of creative accounting that you need to work with uh, in conjunction with an accountant. Okay. markets that would be attractive for a foreign investor in Japan. I know I've been focused on Tokyo because that's a market that I've traveled into the most and have, have have visited. But you know, other markets like Osaka or Fukuoka, um, where you guys are based. Yep. Curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah. So Tokyo and Osaka and their immediate um, neighboring big cities. So Yokohama, Kawasaki, right next to Tokyo, and Kobe, right next to Osaka. Um, those are the hottest um, international market. I mean, markets that are that international investors are aware of, and as a result of that, prices there um, are probably a bit too hot for comfort in most cases. Again, last two three months notwithstanding, and rental yields are also much lower there uh, for the same reason. Um, other places in Japan, I mean, there are plenty of places that have. Um, comfortable population figures that are going up or at least uh, stable 
and um, economies that are not like uh, one-trick ponies. I mean, there's more than one or two industries in the city. Um, so that would be the next contender, yes, would be Fukuoka. It's been growing as sharply as Tokyo and Osaka, but it still has a lot more room to grow. They've only started growing uh, since 2012 or so. Um, Kyoto is always good if we can find deals there. It's a smaller, um, just geographically, it's a smaller area, so not that many deals that come out of there, but there are occasionally some. Um, when, you, when you say deals have been depressed in these international spotlight markets, can you just give me a range, like you know, Tokyo, Osaka, on, on the deals that you've assist clients on compared to places like Fukuoka? Um vast majority of our clients do not purchase in Tokyo and Osaka. So we've got, I think, out of, say, 200-something properties that we facilitated and are managing, we've got maybe five in Tokyo and three in Osaka. Um, just because our clients, because they're mostly cash buyers, they tend to be a lot more cash flow oriented. And just cash flow there is just not that attractive. Uh, we haven't worked with any customer who's gone with the finance yet, no. I mean, those uh, loans have only been available to non-foreigners for the last two years or so, and the terms and the criteria are still pretty stringent. So we've had quite a few people made inquiries, and we put them in touch with the lenders, but none that have actually pulled the trigger on a loan yet now. Because it's not only, I mean, the, the percentage of interest is higher than you'd get as a local Japanese, uh, from a local Japanese lender. It's between 3 to 4%. And um, the LTV is not that attractive. Like I said, it's um, 60 to 70% LTV. And they're also pretty stringent with their requirements. They want to make sure that you're not going to be leasing it out for anything other than long-term leases. And some of the lenders necessitate setting up a company. Some of them necessitate that you only use their designated uh, property managers for the lifetime of the loan, just so that they can uh, enforce the fact that they don't want you to uh, rent it out short term. Um, and their location criteria is quite stringent as well. So they only go for very central spots in those big uh, big cities. So Tokyo, Osaka, Fukuoka, occasionally Kyoto, Nagoya, um, but very central locations. And that minimum, pra- minimum loan amount per asset is also a, a bit of a hurdle for a lot of investors who like, just because the smaller, cheaper properties just tend to generate higher rental yields. So most investors prefer to, if they had, say, like you're saying, 100, 150,000, aside from a few of them, they prefer to diversify that over two or three or four properties rather than just the one. Yeah. Um, so as a result of that, none of them have actually gone forward with a loan yet. That's not to say that the lenders haven't done loans. They've done plenty of loans, just not with our customers. Yeah. And then for, on an unlevered basis, what, what yields are we looking at, like, smaller markets that, that you've advised clients on, maybe Fukuoka or somewhere, somewhere else versus the, the sort of international hotspots? Well, Tokyo and Osaka, if you get, just so we're on the same page, we're talking net pre-tax, so including all of your purchase and known running costs, but not including your annual taxes and any yeah. unknown, so not including maintenance, vacancies, and so forth. So net pre-tax for Tokyo and Osaka, you're looking at... Uh, Last two months, six percent if we're lucky, but usually more like four or five at most. Uh, Fukuoka, Nagoya, Kyoto, 
can go up to seven, seven and a half percent if we're very lucky. And smaller areas, places like Kumamoto, some of the prefectural capitals and some of the satellite cities around Tokyo and Osaka, maybe up to eight and a half percent. Beyond that, I mean, there are places where you could get um, yield on purchase that's higher than that, but it's a place that's going to be hard to populate if and when a tenant moves out. So over yeah. the uh, course of the, the yeah so over the course of the life cycle the investment life cycle it does tend to either average out or go even lower okay and then to your point earlier um, about you know setting up a company that builds income history and then potentially gaining access to the more attractive local financing could uh, presumably you could do that anywhere in Japan like you could start off with um maybe the, the more expensive foreigner loan options or something like Fukuoka or even finance it from, from other sources, build up the history and then, you know, move up in property size and LTV and lower cost financing to tackle markets like Osaka and Tokyo. Is that an option or you have to build sort of history in, in, in specific markets? For no, it isn't a national option, but the thing is that you need a... Um your representative director of the company needs to be a Japanese resident, uh, which means that there's, again, a bit, a bit of creative structuring to do. And you also, again, you'll need to not declare all of the, um, all of the deductions and depreciations that you can, just so you can build up taxable income. Because if you've got actual income that's not being taxed because you've claimed deductions, the banks don't take that as income. It's zero from their perspective. I see. Um, so, I mean, it depends on how big you plan your portfolio to be over the long run. If it's something that you're looking at, um, I, from what our accountants explain, if once you hit about 800000 or a million dollars worth in asset value, then it might become worth it to own the properties under a corporate structure. Um, but otherwise, the overhead the overhead for maintaining the structure is pretty high. If you're only going to be getting, um, say, four, five, six thousand bucks a year in net income, then paying two, three thousand bucks a year just to maintain the structure is not really worth it. Okay. So when when you quote a million, that's net pre-tax. Uh, the million dollars, you mean? No, if the asset if the asset value is a million dollar, meaning it's generating, let's say, conservatively, um, fifty, forty, fifty thousand bucks a year in net income. Yeah, and then oh, it yeah. becomes. I think, you know, for, for for my perspective, if we can find a way to unlock the local financing, get this up in the higher LTV and lower cost financing, I certainly want to expand the portfolio above that. To, to counterbalance what I have in, in Canada and, and elsewhere, um, given the cash flow nature of this market. So I think the intent is to get there, but I wouldn't get there day one until I can tap that local financing. Well, I mean, look, over time, it might get easier as well. I mean, again, those non-resident foreigners weren't even available two years ago. So it's, it's possible that as Japan slowly opens up to the concept of um, foreign investment, um, foreign finance investment, it's possible that in two, three years' time we'll see um, easier terms and you know more lenient lending to um, either okay. to foreigner-owned companies or non-resident foreigners. Yeah. 
Um, so, so, so based on what we've touched on so far, uh, I sense that you know, you're recommending the more cash buy markets, or you know, if, if I want to tap the foreigner financing like core Fukuoka as a good balance between yields, underlying demographic, uh, outlay diversification potential. These days, I would go yeah for Fukuoka or Nagoya. Nagoya is also um, they've just they're constructing the new uh, bullet train line between Tokyo and Nagoya now, and that's um, because they've demolished and they're still demolishing quite a few uh, quite a few buildings along the tracks. That's also put a lot of pressure on the city center occupancy wise. Um, so prices are transactions have definitely picked up there, and prices are probably pegged to uh, to take a bit of a hike in the next two three years. So Nagoya and Fukuoka are if you want to call it that, the rising stars kind of thing. Okay. That sounds good. Um, and then on, on, on tax, you, you mentioned depreciation, capital cost allowance. Is that pretty similar to, to the West? Or are there any unique aspects for tax optimization in the Japanese market for foreign owners? Uh, no, pretty similar. I mean, you'd obviously need to, uh, I can put you in touch with an accountant who can explain more about that. It's not our expertise, but generally speaking, they've got two types of tax depreciation tables that they can follow. So they're going to choose the um, the more efficient one, depending on the age and location and the price of the property and depending on the income it generates. Um, you can carry all of your purchase costs uh, forward for three years as an individual and five years as a company. So depending depending on what you're buying and how expensive it is, you're probably going to be tax-free for at least the first one or two years. Um, okay. Otherwise, yeah, I mean, again, an accountant would be the best one to advise on that, but not that different to the West now. Okay. That's helpful. You know, if, if I decide to go for, like you said, similar to your other buyers, cash buy on smaller smaller units that don't meet the 15 million minimum loan amount uh, are there scrutiny around sources of financing coming from board like could I use for example my properties in Canada or elsewhere uh, refinance them free up some some headroom use that to, to fund the quote unquote cash purchase in Japan um, if it's more attractive terms and um, yeah, for sure. No, nobody cares where your money comes from. I mean, obviously, um, we're going to ask you to sign uh, in our contract. You need to um, confirm via contract that um, all of your uh, funds are coming from legitimate sources. But beyond that, I don't think anybody scrutinizes now. Okay. That's helpful. Great. Um, what What do you propose as, as, as next steps? Like, if It sounds like those those two markets are certainly of interest um, from from size standpoint diversification. Do you have a list of of properties that you know, you maintain, and we can we can go from there and look at yield characteristic and start modeling some of them out? Well, we don't own any properties directly. I mean, we own properties personally, but not on behalf of our clients. So we represent you in Japan as your agent uh, for the purchase and management processes. Uh, purposes so we can send you samples of properties that are available in the market now or samples of properties that we facilitated in the um, recent past 
but it's a very active market. So just bear in mind that um, usually we have to put in an offer fairly quickly after the listing if we want to get our foot in the door. And then we make those offers pending due diligence. So we write on the offer that um, uh, it's depending on the tenant information, the building information, renovation history, reserve fund, and so forth. And then the agents and the sellers start providing that info, not before that. And if, so if we're unhappy with any of that information, we can pull the offer back, but we need to have a legitimate reason. Otherwise, the um, agent's going to label us uh, just foreign tire kickers and never work with us again kind of thing. process much better than I do, so I'll take your, your guidance on that one. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that that sounds sounds good. Um, it's helpful to know those those two markets, so I think for, for this first phase, let's, let's focus on those. Based on what I heard, that, that seems to check a lot of boxes for me. Those two being Fukuoka and Nagoya. Fukuoka and Nagoya. Yep. Okay, so I'll ask Pretty to send you some samples of what we've done there recently and what we've uh, seen there recently. And we were happy to um, just discuss and uh, give you examples and so forth. But if you want us to start uh, making offers and conducting due diligence, we have to be properly engaged. So when you're ready for that, just let us know and we'll send you some forms to have signed and witnessed. Uh, just allowing us to represent you here. And we also need our fee estimate paid in advance. Uh, now, I'm not sure what Pretty explained in our correspondence with you. I haven't followed it all the way down, but we're buyers, agents, and portfolio managers. So our fees come on top of the uh, realtors, on top of the property managers, and so forth. So we give you a single point of contact, and we manage those companies and those relationships uh, on your behalf with third parties. Yeah, it, it, I think it'd be helpful for, for you to send me the full information on what, the, obviously, the, the upfront fees are and the ongoing you know, overhead on top of the, the, the regular fee. It'd be super helpful if, you know, accompanying these past listings that you facilitated your client buying them, uh, I think pretty mentioned some, some return calculator or something that would have obviously like the usual suspects that I want to know about owning a property in Japan, rough estimates for, for maintenance fees and ongoing property management fee. And then, you know, on top of that, the drag from, from, from having a single point of contact, which I think makes a lot of sense for me living abroad, yep. just so I can get an idea of, of net return to me over time for some of the illustrative properties that you've, you've helped facilitate with clients in the past. Yeah, for sure. When I say samples, I mean samples uh, in deal analysis spreadsheet format. Perfect. All right. Sounds good. Right, so there you have it. Hopefully this helps many of you who are in the same situation at the moment and are considering what would be the best structure for your own portfolio. In this particular case, since the client already owns a holding company in America, and since he's going to be going for cash purchases in the short term, but with an eye to larger financed and leveraged investments in the longer term, we put him in touch with an accountant that many of our clients have been using, and together they've come up with a structure that actually involves two separate companies, a local office of the overseas company that he already owns to start off with for the cash purchases, and then a second company a bit further down the track for the finance purchases, which will naturally involve more upkeep and expenses. But considering the tax implications of cross-border investment scenarios and their associated life cycles over a longer period of time, this works out to be the most suitable solution for him. If you're in a similar situation and would like to talk to an accountant who's familiar with these types of structures, don't be shy, drop us a line and we'll put you in touch with one. 
You can do this via the comments section or wherever you may have found this podcast or email us directly at info at nippontradings.com. That's info at mark N-I-P-P-O-N tradings with an S or one word info at nippontradings.com. And of course, as always, we would really appreciate it if you could share this podcast with your own networks and would even more appreciate your feedback, your reviews, your ratings on the iTunes store or Spotify. In fact, let me read you one review that we've received from one of our listeners. I did promise I'll do that once in a while. So here goes. And he writes, this is the podcast capitalized to listen to if you want to invest in Japan. I've been an avid listener of Japan Real Estate Podcast for nearly a year now, and there really is nothing quite like it out there. The host, Ziv Nakajiyom, again, provides excellent content for his listeners and articulates the information in English really well. It's hard enough investing in a country outside my own, let alone overcoming the language barrier. So I find Ziv's explanations and insights absolutely helpful for me when I'm purchasing property in Japan. The good thing about Ziv is that he always offers balanced, rational view by covering both the pros and caveats of investing in real estate in Japan. All in all, it's a fantastic podcast, and I highly recommend it. So, wow, thank you, um, anonymous reviewer. All we have on you is that you're a British expat living in Hong Kong. So if you'd like to get in touch with us, we would really love to have you on the show to listen to your own experiences investing in Japan. But nevertheless, you just made our day, so truly appreciate it. So that's it from us for today, folks. We hope you've enjoyed this portfolio structuring chat of ours. Don't be shy. Hit us up if you also want to talk shop. We're always happy to. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, from all of us here at NTI, Yoroshiku. Yoroshiku.